In today's episode, I speak to Rene Haas, the co-founder and CEO of Neo Carbon, a company which has created a product that removes CO2 from the atmosphere by retrofitting industrial cooling towers with direct air capture devices. Direct air capture has been promoted as one of the most promising solutions to climate change. However, there has been controversy and discussions around it, whether the technology is too expensive or if it can actually be implemented at scale. And NeoCarbon believes that it has found a much more scalable and affordable solution because industrial cooling towers actually already create a great environment for direct air capture, which reduces the cost massively. So it's great to have you on the show, Rene. Welcome. Yeah. Thanks, Michael, uh, for having me. Uh, so tell us a bit more about your journey before we dive into the technology. How did you get where you are now and why do you do what you do? Yeah, I'm Rene from background, industrial engineer, studied in Germany, then Spain, and also spent some time in China during my master, where I was firsthand confronted with climate change, which was a huge trigger for me personally already Yeah, 10 years ago. During the master, I started working at Siemens Energy in R&D for large gas turbines. Really enjoyed this R&D heavy work, but realized, okay, maybe the big corporate is not my perfect setup with this point in life. So I decided to go for consulting, consulted all the big energy companies within Central Europe, so the Dach region. And very randomly, I would say, I, I met some people from a startup. They just started and I just helped them out after my consulting hours, just some hours per day. So then from nine to 11 during the week and realized, okay, I can actually create something. I can shape the company and I can have an impact. And I really enjoyed that. And this was yeah five years ago by now. And I thought, okay, let's do my own company. I want to become an entrepreneur. I, I really enjoyed the work and the lifestyle, but I wasn't ready at this point. So I decided to join a company because I didn't have the track record or, or the co-founder or a business idea. So I had nothing and I wanted to learn a lot. So joining a startup was actually a very good decision. I joined as a Yeah, I would say now you would call it a founder associate. So working super close with the COO together and then, yeah, progressing into uh, um, the role of the head of business development. So more the strategy lead. And yeah, we have been able to raise 50 million and I personally scale teams from 20 to a bit more than 100 people. So I got like this yeah, investor relationships and also how to treat them. But on the other hand, Also, it's like how to lead people and how to set up structures that can scale. And yeah, with this, now I've felt kind of ready. And also my private life fit very well to what I'm doing now because I still don't have kids. And I can really dedicate all my energy and time to this very early stage venture. And so I, I quit my job just after we raised the round of 40 million. So it was Yeah, I, I think by now it was a smart move, but back in the days it was like a bit weird. But yeah, then I struggled nine months in, in finding the right co-founder. Like I talked to a lot of smart people, but no one was 100% dedicated. And I had the same, like before starting my own real company, I had like, I think 20 side projects here and there and tried this and that. And nothing really played out because I was never really dedicated, but also maybe it was the wrong idea. I don't know. But yeah, then after nine months, I said, okay, let's just join an, an incubator program and let's see how it goes. So I joined Antler in Berlin. So it's quite highly selective, I would say. So they had 1,500 applications and 50 people got in. So you also know for yourself, okay, whoever got in, 
has somehow at least a bit of scale or you would assume. And yeah, there I, I met my co-founder on the first day. We completely clicked on values and how we want to create a company and what kind of company we want to create. We have been not so sure around, will it be direct air capture? Will it be something else? This was not 100% defined, even though we both looked really deeply into direct air capture ourselves before. And yeah, I'm super happy with my co-founders. He's French. I'm also an engineer. He's focusing more on the tech. So he's the CTO and he had a previous startup in Helsinki. So he has also kind of already this founder experience. Amazing. And Super interesting journey. I think there's quite a few people in the position that you were in initially of kind of tinkering with some projects. Do you initially, before you actually committed to it, do you think that was necessary for you to make up your mind on where you want to go? Or would you say, okay, if you want to be an entrepreneur, just like, goes to something like Antler as soon as you can? Mm, I think it's really also a lesson learned from this journey. It's like, it's your way. For me, it was perfectly like this because I validated a lot of tracks that are not right for me, but maybe for other people, it's, they don't need an incubator. Other people just start a company when they are super young. Others do it when they are, the kids are out of the door, I would say. So it's really unique. I realized for me, it was very good to see all those different things. And I tried a lot of different things. Like it was not only climate tech, it was also other things where I thought, oh, maybe I do this and I realized, okay, there was no purpose in it. So I could make money with it and it would be a business, but do I enjoy it? And then I was like, okay, no, it's just basically wasting my time. So I don't want to do it, even though you can maybe have a decent lifestyle with it. So I think it's very unique and, and trying a lot is a good thing. So I would recommend trying this and this out. You don't have to go the first big step if you feel not ready for it. Like, like I would not force myself into, okay, you have to do it. Just start and decide a bit here and there, learn a bit, and you can learn a lot as an employee. Like, especially when you get in kind of a leadership position, especially in a startup, because it's very similar from being a founder. It's like a lot of things I learned at Tink. I use now at NeoCarbon. Like I said, I fucked up a lot of things. Yeah, and there it just happens and it's normal, but better do it early in your journey. So learning somewhere else, it's a good thing. Uh, and, and fuck up on somebody else's budget. That's always good. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it, it, not to say uh, that openly, but... <laughs> uh, uh, of course, you have to make a lot of things also right to grow up and to get more responsibility. But like learning somewhere else, especially in your, I would say in your 20s, yeah. is kind of a smart move. Like because... I tried really, even before joining Tink, I had a small gap between consulting and I just wanted to start on my own, but the progress was just not fast enough. Like learning somewhere really accelerates your speed and also the network and also the trust in you. While when just sitting at home or like even when you work all the day, the progress and the learning curve is just not there. So learning from someone who's already there is something I would really recommend and you accelerate so fast. It's super cool. Got it. So many questions around this. I mean, we'll dive deeper into this later in the episode as well. But uh, one more question I'd love to ask before we jump into your uh, solution and what you're doing is you mentioned that you were very, you know, you met your co-founder and you kind of just matched because you had a similar vision of the type of company you want to build, not even the, like 100% clarity on what you want to build. And I had a similar conversation recently with Tom Foster Carter, who was the former COO of Monzo, which is a big unicorn fintech bank here. And he's a 
four-time founder. So he started all kinds of unicorn companies and now a smaller company. But he's like, actually, the latest companies he's founded, he basically just decided what kind of company, what kind of culture, what's important for his life. Like he's a father. He wants to mm. design the company around his life as well. So tell us about that. Have you done that with your co-founder in the early days? Tell us a bit more about being intentional about the type of company you're building before you even do the rest. When we when we met, um, like this was the first day of Antler, so you meet 50 people. But then it was just about we we I don't know how to describe it, but we clicked while having just lunch, and I said, okay, let's go for dinner one on one. And on the dinner, we didn't really talk about business. It was more about his family, his brothers. I talked about my life, and it was really about like the values we have. And I think it's, especially this founder journey is so intense that it's really important that you have the same values and also you expect the same. Like, like we also later filled out a very famous founder questionnaire, um, each of us individually, and then we put it next to each other. And what do we want at this point in life? And does it fit? And yeah, for us, uh, we acted a bit like brothers, to be honest. So in some things we are different, but in a lot of things we are very similar. And the company we are now building fits our both lifestyles. So we are, I think, like he's two months older, but so we're really the same age. And also private life, very, very similar. And the intensity of our individual lives is also quite similar. So we clicked on a lot of things and we spent also a lot of time together in our free time because some founders know each other since many, many years. What we did, we drank quite often together in the, in the early days and just uh, went on the dance floor and enjoyed life. And this brought us kind of close together. So we acted more like a team and we had a very good understanding of each other. So I think the values is important and what kind of company you want to build and the rest will then kind of fall a bit into place. How long did you take until you committed to actually, okay, we're definitely going to start this business together. How long was this kind of dating phase, so to say, to get to know each other, party, make sure you're uh, a good fit? Now, I would say it was like the whole enter program is like 10, 12 weeks. And I think we decided after four or five weeks. So after this initial perfect date, I would say, we met everyone else in the program. So we wanted to validate, okay, is this the right fit? Is this the right person? And after like meeting everybody else and we met a lot of great people. So I had before I had no potential co-founder, then I had like five. I, I realized, okay, that's actually the best fit. And then we just said, okay, we, we haven't been aligned on a business idea at this point, but we said, okay, let's work together. But in the meantime, we had a lot of work sessions together where, for example, once we had it that everybody had 24 hours and then you have to prepare a business case to the other and have to convince them of your business idea. And this we made in circles and there you could see, okay, how fast can this person work, how they create results and what do they do, how proactive they are. So we validated a lot during those weeks, but it took us some months and it, it was good to take your time. Like you're not in a rush. Got it. Okay, let's dive into Neo Carbon and your technology. Tell us how does it work? How does Neo Carbon work and how is it different from what's out there? So like in general, like you know, there's too much CO2 in the atmosphere. We have to cut emissions, um, which is super important and super critical. But like the IPCC says now, even we have to remove certain emissions from the atmosphere. Only a few technologies can do this. One is so-called direct air capture. Problem there is the very high cost. What you normally do, you build a big fan that's creating a gigantic airflow. 
this airflow, you push on a sorbent, which is like a, can be a liquid or a solid yeah, chemical. And this sorbent really likes CO2. So the CO2 attaches to it, while the nitrogen and the oxygen, which is also in the air, doesn't attach to it. After normally 60 minutes, the material is saturated. So it can't capture more CO2. It's like just saturated. So what you then do, you heat up your system to 80, 90 degrees and then release the CO2 as a pure stream. Problem there, like mentioned, super high price. And we thought, okay, if we want to help this industry to scale, we need to find a way to cut the costs, which also suits kind of our background. So we are both not chemists, but we are both engineers. So um, retrofitting existing infrastructure and with that cutting the costs seemed very attractive to us. And, and we thought, okay, what kind of infrastructure is out there? What could we use? And then coming across cooling towers because they are actually perfect for what we are doing. So the biggest ones you probably know are the ones from nuclear power plants. So gigantic towers, but there are even a lot of smaller towers out there as well. And what they do, they evaporate heat in the form of water. So basically, water is coming from the top, air is coming from the bottom, and they just cool down the water to cool an industrial process. So this is just perfect for us, because when we leverage those, we have, first of all, we have a CapEx safe, because we don't have to build this tower, but we also have a safe on the groundwork around the tower, because we are an industrial setup compared to building in the middle of nowhere. Then second thing, we have already existing airflow, so it's a, it's a portion, especially of the OPEX, to create this kind of airflow to, to get this ventilator in, in motion, which you would normally have at the direct air capture plant. And the third very big advantage, especially when it comes to OPEX, is the heat. So like I said, a cooling tower is just evaporating heat. Like that's the only job. And basically you can see, ah, here is waste heat because there is a cooling tower. And we can leverage this waste heat for our desorption phase, which is like a huge, huge driver of, of the OPEX. And the fourth kind of advantage is more in our go-to market while we focus in the early days on industries that need CO2 as an input. So we don't have to handle logistics and sequestration. Of course, this will not make it carbon negative and it will not be carbon removal. It's more like avoidance, but this will help us to be in the market very early on before all the infrastructure, all the carbon hubs, all the pipelines, before all of this is ready, we are already having like some installations out there that, that can run and that we, we basically collect those hours, those operating hours. And yeah, with all of that, we have something that is quite unique. And with this, we kind of can cut the cost down. Yeah, it's impossible to scale this industry because if it's at the moment like $1,000 per ton, uh, we just calculated it's like 25% of world GDP if we would remove that per year. So that's something can't scale. So using this existing infrastructure just makes a lot of sense. Got it. And then what stage are you at? How far is the technology and what's mm -hmm. still to do now? Right now we are lab scale. So we built the first proof of concept in, in February, just one month after the company started. It was very hacked together prototype, but it worked on a high level. But we have very special conditions because it should not interact in a bad way with the cooling tower. So pressure drop is there. The thing we are not allowed to block the tower. Basically, so there we tried different approaches. Now we iterated our product. It's fully running now with proper sensors, proper measurements. I would say it's right now TRL three to four, and early 2023 we want to bring this then in a real environment. So moving away from lab to a real environment, we have already the first yeah potential pilot partners around Berlin. 
So for us, it's very important to learn from the field as fast as possible and to see there what can go wrong. And there are a lot of things that can go wrong, actually, especially when you're building hardware. We'll talk about that and maybe the development process as well. Uh, I'd love to learn a bit more about business model. I assume you're selling, like the goal is to sell these devices to these companies running these factories and cooling towers. Is that the case? How does the business model work from your side? So from our side, the thing is, hardware is different to scale than software, of course. And our idea is that we don't scale ourselves. So we see ourselves as a technology company that's building the most novel approach to direct air capture, but then scaling with big partners. So there are big energy companies, big cooling tower manufacturers, actually talking now to the, I would say, seven biggest in the world. And the idea is that they license our technology for a certain amount of time in a certain industry for a certain country, and that we basically generate revenue while they implementing our solution. And for them, of course, they are different than their competition and they get additional service revenue because we also don't want to do the service ourselves. Imagine if we, if we want to have a big impact and then say to an investor, yeah, I need 5 billion to do the rollout. Then they would say, hmm, maybe that's not the case. That's not what we wanted to do. But for them, it's quite cool because they have already those service engineers out there. They have already those sites. And for us, it's just a perfect scaling case. So licensing, especially when you have a unique approach, makes a lot of sense. And that's what we are aiming for. Got it. And then basically you're selling, assuming the kind of offsets generated by the carbon capture. Is that like kind of what you deal with as well or is that somebody else? So it's the early days. So a lot of things we need to be defined. We think it makes a lot of sense if we own this kind of whole process and that we kind of also handle this process of the offsetting. Of course, we will not do the offsetting ourselves, like the sequestration, so pumping it back underground is something we will have the overview of the process, but this is also something to do with a partner because that's a whole different like than technology. But if the cooling tower manufacturer like licenses our technology, we take care that everything else is kind of taken care of and that all the agreements are already in place and they don't have to handle this. Of course, if they want to do this as well, we are open to discuss. It's the early days, yeah. but ideally we have already all the contacts. So why building them? Got it. And then what's in it for the cooling tower manufacturer? Okay, they can say they are more innovative. They have like the better cooling towers that capture CO2. But what is their business benefit for them or for their customers that basically gets them to actually buy this? So like I said, first of all, they are, they are different than their competitors and they don't have like crazy high margins on their product. So it's like really a, a differentiator and of course like said they will generate additional service business so also our products need service maintenance we have to exchange the sorbents or the chemical over time and that's something we don't want to do so as a startup we say okay we we will have some pilots and we want to iterate on them and learn from them but we don't want to do all this service and all of that so for them it's a differentiator to the competition and really additional service business and then for their clients, why would they basically go with that solution? Would it be purely out of a perspective, actually, we want to be seen to do do something? Or is there like, you know, they may have to spend that additional service revenue that your customers are making, obviously, so it's an increased cost for them. What's the benefit for them in the end? <laughs> of course, for them, it's like you have more and more regulations forcing industrial players to to decarbonize and that's super important and a lot of 
things are also happening there. Problem is a lot of those industries do, of course, point source capture. So from those exhaust streams and point source capture gets very expensive at a certain point, like when you want to reach from 95 to 99%. So then you are more in the thousands of, of euros per ton. And then it's just an economical advantage if you say, okay, the rest we do with direct air capture instead of the last end with this point source capture. So that's kind of their advantage. And the good thing is when you already do point source capture, then you already have the infrastructure for the sequestration and the whole CO2 logistics also already there. So for them, there's also an advantage to turn their factories really carbon neutral or even even negative. Got it. This is so cool. It's very amazing to hear. Now, my question that I have is, what does the roadmap look like between where you're now and actually having this really as a massively scalable implemented solution that's in every cooling tower in the world? <laughs> what are kind of the next steps for you that you need to accomplish? Yeah. So immediate next steps, of course, is going from lab to the real environment as, as fast as possible. Because also in the early days, we started prototyping super early. Before we had proper models, we just, okay, what we need, and then hacked it together and learned a lot from this, built a lot of supply relationships early on. And now we want to go into the real world and want to learn from there as fast as possible. So Q1, end of Q1, 2023, getting the first like thing in the real world out there. We don't care so much about the scale how much tons we capture. It's more like getting something end-to-end -end running. And then we have different research tracks throughout the year. So we collaborate with big corporates, but also with universities and iterating there before then going for a bigger role, hopefully then 25 around, and then ideally with a partner. So we always want to keep our R&D market, which will be Germany or Central Europe, where we run the stuff ourselves, but then scaling to different countries with this licensing model after 2025, 2026. Most promising markets on what we saw so far um, are the US for us, of course, like uh, Inflation Reduction Act, Q45, super interesting for us. And we see a lot of demand coming to us. So we don't really do reach outs in general, like people coming to us. I don't know how, why and how, but they do it. And we see also a lot of demand from India. So those are, besides Europe, of course, our markets where we then want to scale. And then, yeah. Over time, let's see how this develops. Got it. And then you mentioned the Inflation Reduction Act. Is there any specifics that are driving people now to contact you? What is it that they're trying to solve for themselves? So the US Inflation Reduction Act is basically incentivizing direct air capture. Before it was $50 per ton. Now it's $180 per ton. If you do sequestration, if you do utilization, it's a bit, it's a bit lower. And this is like a huge thing. So it's... I think that's one of the main drivers, but also we are quite well connected in the US. So we are part of air miners of DAC coalition, and we see a lot of things in the industry are starting in the US, even though Climeworks, one of the biggest players is from Europe. We see that they are really pushing this forward. So I think maybe because of that. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, obviously in climate tech, there's always the discussion who's kind of moving faster or putting more regulation in place. But I think everybody I speak to in climate tech says the Inflation Reduction Act has just changed everything now for the US for sure. But I mean, obviously this, you know, impacts us here in Europe as well, as we see with you. Yeah. And very interesting to see also Europe has to do something like we're in an energy crisis right now in, in Europe and especially specifically in Germany <laughs> right now. 
So I think something something will happen, but of course you never know when and how big it will be. But what the US did, it's just super cool for the whole industry. So let's see what Europe comes up with. Well, let's hope we get or we catch up again. So now I would love to actually take things a bit deeper into some of the lessons learned in your journey and some things that founders can learn from you. We have early stage founders listening to this. You know, are there some like hard lessons learned, difficult things that you had to learn the hard way in the last couple of years? And what are they? So there are some things to share, of course, not by order and at different times, different learnings. But definitely something I want to share is like, don't underestimate the intensity of the early days. Like, like I do a lot of sports. I'm really into like ultra stuff. But starting this early stage company was so intense. Some weekends, my co-founder and I like both just slept whole weekends. Just we have been so exhausted. So the intensity of the early days is like has some own magic. So it was very cool and super exciting. So and I would like definitely do it again but it's it really takes a lot of energy so so that's something to have in mind so you should be taking care of yourself so like eating good maybe finding some time to train it it's really intense also we thought at the beginning ah let's do something smart let's do some shortcuts here and there but in some things there are no shortcuts so in our case investor conversations we had a lot of inbound from investors and then we had one investor who, who wanted to like give us a term sheet and we said, okay, perfect. And we work with you and all good. And then they want to see, but who else is interested? And then we kind of had, we thought, okay, let's just talk to some. But basically we had to go out to all the investors and have to talk to everybody. And I had to pitch the company probably some hundred times. So there was definitely just no shortcut, super intense early days. But another good thing is that like everything at the end planned out way better than we expected it. So both my co-founder and I, when we started working together, we started writing letters to ourselves. So three months in the future, very broad, of course, would you think of and so on. And then um, looking back, a lot of things like this was also good learning played out way better than you thought. And I was made way more ready than I thought. So, so I took these years and years of learning and actually probably I could have started two years earlier as well. So this is definitely a learning for me. Another thing, sorry, but I, I love this. And another thing was really, I didn't expect how important your reputation is. Like people reached out to previous employees of mine, but also to my previous boss asking how I was working. Investors did it, but also other partners. And I do it as well if I start working with someone. So even as an employee, I work super hard. I didn't really care about the hours and I just cared about having something great that we can build together. And really, really people picked this up and it was, it's a very strong thing. What you do even before you start your company, the years, you will be measured by that. Of course, don't be scared, but that's definitely a thing. So it pays off even if it's not your company yet, it helps you later. And yeah, one thing I also want to share because this was a very hard lesson for me. And this, I thought when I work on something that meaningful, then I'm never like burning out or I will always have energy. But that's definitely not true. <laughs> like you need time for sports, for your family, for your friends. And when you just work, you get uncreative. You are not in a good mood. And when you are not in a good mood as a founder, you can feel it in the whole team. Like everybody's behaving weird then. So even when you work on something great, taking care of yourself and having certain breaks. So it's okay in the fundraising to work till two in the morning. No problem. 
But if you do it in a regular week for several months, that's a problem. Then you just do a lot. But is it really, does it make sense what you do? So really, even if it's something purposeful, still having in mind to think of yourself And yeah, another thing I want to share. Sorry for all of that. <laughs> oh, so much to dive deep into. I mean, even just on that point, I just got to emphasize the point you just made is so important. I think like I've been through this myself with the first company I started, which was a platform for finding jobs in the social and environmental impact space. So we match talent with companies. Yeah. And I thought, yeah, I just have this mission and I love it. And if we can get more people to leave these corporate jobs and work for these exciting startups that solve social problems, I'll be fulfilled. I don't, I can like work 24-7 basically. And I felt a duty to do that as well. I was like, it's, it's important to work on this, work seven days a week. And after a while, I found myself in bed, unable to get up, depressed, burned out. You know, first time in my life going to psychologists and therapy and things like that. and. It's interesting. I think that's something that impact-driven founders, some founders, or quite a few in our space actually make that mistake because they are like so driven by the yeah. mission, they forget yeah. about themselves and maybe deprioritize themselves. So I just want to emphasize that point. Love that you brought it up. Yeah. And also another thing, when you talk about psychotherapists and stuff like that, what we are now also starting with my co-founder is that we go together so that we start like this couple therapy while everything in good face, like everything is now very cool. We're still uh, super close to each other, but we want to start this very early because when at a certain point, like our investor like to say, if shit hits the fan, then you kind of have to be ready. So being close with your co-founder, even when you think everything is going very well, is important because that's the, like, first of all, of course, the relationship to yourself. So you have to feel good. And when it takes you half an hour to stand up in the morning, that's not good. And if it's some hours, then it's even worse, of course. But the second biggest relationship in the company should be the one with your co-founder. So always being close to your co-founder and this person should really know how you feel, why you feel, how you feel. Like being close with the co-founder is core from my point of view for a company to succeed. That's what employees will see. And that's also what investors and partners, all of that, will see how good your relationship is and how good the company is running. It shapes, yeah, the culture, the relationship you have with your co-founders shapes the whole company, right? Especially once you scale up. Yes. I, I love that you're doing kind of uh, yeah, co-founder couples therapy, or so to say. Like, <laughs> tell us a little more about that. Like, is that like a traditional couples therapist? No. Is that like a no. co-founder therapist? Is that a thing? How does it work? Yeah. Like we are just starting with it, but it's basically like a business coach. Like we have a lot of very experienced founders within our network and we get a lot of advice and we ask very often for advice. And that's what came from all of them. So it's basically someone that's listening to both of you and or even when you are more than of course more and just basically an open ear, but also like to really block this time and to say, hey, that's an important thing that's also doing something with your relationship already. Of course, don't make it too complex, but I think to have someone external that also coaching other founders is beneficial for you as well. Got it. But yeah, I mean, you shared so many lessons there. We could do a whole episode on each of them, but really good advice. Really good to hear as well on the kind of referencing from VCs and how much they actually do reference checks, right? Like, Maybe, especially in 2021, you could get the impression that VCs would just wire money to whoever was deemed the hottest startup out there. 
uh, it's not quite the case, especially now. Like people are careful with their money. If they invest their money, they will do proper due diligence on you as a person, especially in the early stages. That's all you have, really. And that kind of, yes. you know, you may have a little prototype or something, but that's about what you have. Like you have the co-founders and an idea and a mission. So I love that you brought that up. I think the other point you mentioned is a bit of a disease in some degrees. VCs asking, you know, who else is investing? I don't know. Yeah. I just, whenever I hear that, I just don't think like, okay, do you actually think the startup is exciting and promising or not? Or do you just need somebody else with an exciting brand name to say that for you and you just follow them without naming any names or anything? But in general, do you think, do you agree with that? Or what's your view on that? Yeah, I think it's for the investor also a bit de-risking themselves. So I think, of course, the investor should do their own due diligence and they sh should find it themselves interesting and not because someone else told them. But for them, of course, it's a bit, bit de-risking. So um, I would say it's okay that they ask. Of course, it's weird if you... We had it at the beginning, you have no investors and at the end you have to reject. That's the bit, the weird part. So it's maybe a bit too much at a certain point. Like I would more emphasize doing your own DD and understanding what the startup is doing and then being confident based on your DD and not on the uh, others' investors' DD. But in general, I can understand a bit that they want to de-risk and that's why they want other other investors to be in or at least interested. Got it. One last question for you, and that's about the next 10 years. I know it's a large time frame, but if you think about 10 years from now, how does the world look like if neocarbon succeeds? If we would really go where we wanted to go, then we would be in the, in the millions of tons. We would not be at the gigatons removal, but definitely in the millions of tons. So which would mean we have like some hundred thousands of our installations, which would be amazing. You don't know. The company is just a year old, um, roughly, and we developed insanely good. And if we can yeah, keep that speed, maybe it works out. So yeah, that's what we are aiming for. I wish you all the best on that journey. You mentioned earlier on, don't underestimate what you can accomplish. So I think it's absolutely realistic to do that and be ambitious. And you know, there's actually some old clips from Mark Zuckerberg talking about Facebook. I mean, now it's a whole different discussion around Facebook. But I think what's interesting on that is he actually envisioned Facebook not as big as it became in the end. When you hear him talk, he talks about it. Yeah, maybe one day we'll be at all the universities and that's it, right? It is a challenge that most founders have that they don't quite see how far they can really push this and how far they can go. So... Wish you all the best on that journey and thanks so much for joining. Yeah, thanks, Michael. Thank you, Rene. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, share the episode, leave us a review and consider becoming a supporter on buymeacoffee.com slash impacthustlers. This means a lot to me. Thank you very much for tuning in and see you next time. Bye.